Hey, podcast listeners, it is Michael Shelley here. First Order of Business is a, a big thank you to all of those who pledged during our most recent fund drive. It was a big success, and it was an opportunity for a lot of folks to reach out and get in touch, which doesn't happen during the rest of the year. And this year, uh, it was just a, a a terrific feeling to hear from so many of you. So to those podcast listeners who pledged a big thank you. All right. Today's another one of our Encore presentation podcasts. I've got two interviews, both originally aired in 2008. One of them is the great Lulu. She's one of my favorite guests, just bubbly and irrepressible. She's been on the show twice. If you want to hear the second one, that is over at WFMU.org slash Michael, where it's archived. Uh, this one, we sort of talk about her whole career and she's, she doesn't hold back. She's, she's, just a terrific uh, kind of guest to have. So, you know, she's she's ready with a, a good answer at, at every time. Uh, following Lulu, we'll hear sort of the other side of the coin, a guy named Jack Herbst. He's a guy who made what I knew of only one record, and I tracked him down and uh, talked to him. Uh, he, his record's fantastic, Jimmy's Party, and we played at the very end of uh, the interview. And, you know, from there I found out the other things he did, and he, of course, has a very interesting story. But he's a, you know, he's a guy who sort of, you know, got into the music business very early, had a teeny bit of success, and then, you know, became a pilot for uh, some airline, he says it. Uh, but, you know, these guys are just a, a, a important uh, footnote to rock and roll history. And he was there for a lot of interesting things for uh, the Clovis, New Mexico scene and uh, the Norman Petty recording studios, and then moved to L.A. and worked in the Delphi and Bob Keen, uh, both guys who he has some definite opinions on. So uh, just a good bookend. And a good double-sided uh, rerun here uh, of two different sides of the music industry. Uh, if you've got a, um, a request for something from the archives that you'd love to see on the Encore podcast, just give me an email, S at wfmu.org. All right, first Lulu and then Jack Herbst. Enjoy, folks.
Yeah, there's Lulu. I'll come running over. They just don't make records like that anymore, folks. I, I don't know why. There, it doesn't get better than that. I guarantee you that. Folks joining us on the telephone, it's my pleasure to welcome Lulu to the program. Well, hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm fantastic. What a great record that is. Boy, that just jumps off the turntable. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. I haven't heard it for at least 30 years. <laughs> no. <laughs> I listen to it often, and I turn it high up and annoy my neighbors. That's... <laughs> you know who was on the album. You know who was on the track. Well, I've got a feeling, but what will you tell us? Yeah, I'd like to tell you. It was um, first of all, it was um, Jimmy Page playing guitar. Amazing. Um, from Led Zeppelin, and, I, and that little sound that he made—that kind of little rough sound—was the first time he'd ever used a, a contraption called a fuzz box. And we were all absolutely agog. We were, whoa, Jimmy! I, wow, what a sound! <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, it's just you know, right. doesn't it's... even make an impact. <laughs> and Burt Burns produced it. Burt Burns uh, was with Atlantic. American guy, right? Oh, yeah. Bert came over to London and worked with myself and Jimmy, and then he worked with a, a guy called Mike Leander, who then he brought, he brought Jimmy and Mike Leander back to New York, and they worked on a lot of big hit records on Atlantic. Mike Leander did like, work, all, you know, all the, the drifters, all the string arrangements on mm. the drifters, our um, tracks, Mike arranged, you yep. know, all those beautiful songs like Under the Boardwalk. And um, Burt Burns himself wrote Hang On Sloopy and Twist and Shout and produced, um, oh, God, he wrote, Didn't I make you feel like you were the only man? What's that called again? Um, A piece of my heart. Huh? Piece of my heart. Yeah, he yeah. wrote that as well. Yeah. yeah. I, people forget that guys like Jimmy Page were session guys, you know, yeah. just young guys, played guitar on scores of records. Yeah, absolutely. And he was very young then, of course, and... Uh, he uh, he wasn't in a band at that point. Now, speaking of young, uh, you grew up in Glasgow. Your dad was a butcher. And when did you start singing? Well, my mother said I could sing before I could talk. But, you know, she, mothers always exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely was singing that. As soon as I could speak, I was singing. And when were you singing in front of strangers? Oh, uh, in, in front of... Well, my, when you, in Glasgow, you don't have parties and stand around with drinks in your hand. I mean, they drink, but everybody has to sing. It's a bit like all Celtic. Celts do it, the Welsh do it, the Irish do it. You know, they have a party and everybody has to sing a song. Come on, sing your, sing your favorite, give us your best, you know, <laughs> and everyone would do their turn. And so I sang as soon as I, you know, anyone, there was a party, I'd be two or three years old. People would put me up on the table and I'd stand there singing. Mm. And so you're, you know, you're a kid in the, the late 50s, early 60s, and the sort of post-war baby boom thing is happening you know, the kids need something to do, and there's music in pubs, there's music in, there's dances in everywhere. In the streets, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit, a bit like the films that I would watch of America, because my mother was obsessed with America and never watched an English movie, ever, a British movie. She hated them. She thought they were rubbish. <laughs> so we would watch America, and anything that was American, we were all enamored of. And that's why when I sang, I sang with an American accent. And... Um, You'd watch, going back to people singing in different areas in their homes, I would watch, in America, they'd sing on the stoop. Do you call it the stoop? Mm -hmm, sure. And they'd do the barbershop harmonies, or, you know, it would be like that soulful that black kids would sing, you know, in the streets. It was very similar in Glasgow. Glasgow sort of has a reputation as as one of the really toughest places. You know, it's a yeah. kind of a shipping town. I've been there yeah. a bunch of times. It's a great place to go. It's same, in, same with Liverpool. Yeah, right, exactly. But was it was it a tough place to grow up? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty scary. I mean, as a child, you know, it wasn't a case of being articulate and um, well-educated and 
civil. It was a case if you just reacted physically. Don't talk to me like that and you'd hit somebody, you know? <laughs> yeah, I always feel when I'm there, there's, there's no chance you're going to be shot and killed like in New York City, yeah. but there's a good chance someone's going to break a pint glass over your <laughs> head, you know? That's yes, good, absolutely. Could happen but at, at any the moment. same time, you know, the, the, the thing is that uh, I, I think, you know, they're very passionate, um, and very warm. In fact, Scottish people are very warm. They, they're, I think people talk about, they're often talked about as being dour. Of course, we call that dour, the <laughs> dour, but it's just on the outside. It's the exterior. On the inside, we're really soft as putty. Sounds like New Yorkers. I, do you know, I feel very, very, very similar to, I mean, that's exactly what I think. And that's why when I come here, because I'm here right now, I feel so much at home. Hmm. Uh, at age 14, you're playing with a group called the Glen Eagles. Yes. And how often did you guys play? Every weekend. So did, did you cut your chops, sort of? Was that your school? Well, you know, very, very young. I mean, earlier than that, I used to sing with an accordion band, and, and my, I would go up for competitions when we go on holiday. And weirdly enough, I would kind of mostly win them because, you know, I was always short. I am very small. I'm 5'1". And my voice was always big. So I think there was a novelty about that. And people could not believe the sound mm. that, that a little kid made. So very often I'd win competitions. And then I went to, to work with an accordion band for like a year or two. I'd go to do Sunday concerts. I just couldn't sing enough. I loved it. When my parents had parties and they put me to bed, <laughs> I'd knock on the door and say, can I sing? <laughs> and in the school, I used to sing in the playground for the older, older girls. And so by the time you were playing in clubs, was it just covers of current rock and roll hits? Oh, definitely. I didn't write any of my own songs. It was current rock and roll, but it was a lot of R&B. Like, for instance, I used to absolutely, my favorite was, you know, adored Ray Charles. And I used to love when he sang uh, with Betty Carter or um, the Raylettes. And then, of course, uh, Ike and Tina, um, um, uh, I loved Brenda Lee, though. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities yeah, in her story and yours, yeah. Like, kind of, what is that called? I don't know what that quality is. I suppose it's it's a big voice, I suppose, yeah. and it's got a little, it's got an edge to it, like it's a little bit... Um, Certainly great example there on I'll Come Running Over. You're just, you know, <laughs> it's coming from deep within you, I think. Well, yeah, and, you know, working with Burt Burns, because I think he wanted me to do... Um, who did he want me to sing, do songs? I can't remember. He was all sorts of great tracks he'd bring uh, to, 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 and he wrote that. I think he wrote that one for me. Mm, or did, um, or somebody else did it. See, I'm hopeless. I haven't got such a great memory, but somebody else did that with her father. And he, and that's why he's on that. He's on that track singing with me. So uh, how did you get signed to a record contract? How did you go from 14-year-old girl in Glasgow pub to... Oh, well, everyone was looking for talent because of the Beatles. Hmm. Everybody was looking for talent, so every single newspaper was, you know, doing some sort of search, and all the record companies were sending their scouts out, and at that point, I was singing in a very, very popular club at the weekends in Glasgow, and, um, because I used to jive as well, um, and it was a dance club, and my, my band and I, because it was then that we were, what we called the, they were called the Glen Eagles, the Daily Express, which is a na national newspaper, had a had search for talent and you know they said whoever would win this i think it was another competition uh, whoever would win it would get a contract with a, a 
a big record company. Of course, I was one of the winners. Mm. And I, I think I won it or I came in second or something. 1964, a huge hit was Shout, your Shout. version of well, Shout. That was, that, that was really the essence of me. That was really who I was because I was crazy about the Isley Brothers. Mm. Yeah, and it's a great version of that song. And there's, you know, there's nothing you know, girlish or, or English or white about it. It's just a great, great record, you know? Well, you know, the cute story is that I, there was a big TV show called Ready, Steady, Go. Mm. And, um, I mean, the whole of, the whole of the UK would shut down shop. Everybody would be indoors <laughs> watching. I suppose a bit like the Ed Sullivan show in those days. Mm. Everybody would be home. Right. Um, so, uh, when the record actually came out, cause I got the contract and, um, I recorded the song that I, I sang at the audition, which was a bit disappointing for me, because I thought they'd get me a song written by the Beatles or something. I mean, I was, after all, only 14, so I was a bit naive. <laughs> but anyway, they said, no, no, we, we want you to record the song that you sang at the audition, which was Shout. So when, it, when I'd finished it and it come out as a single, uh, Paul and Paul and John were on, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, were on Ready, Steady, Go by themselves just chatting away to the host of the show. And she said, what is your favorite release this week? And they said, Shout by Lulu. So I nearly, I mean, I... You could have retired happy at, at that point. I nearly yeah. died. I'll bet you did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were voted in 65 Britain's Most Promising Newcomer in Show Business by Melody Maker. And your career has just sort of gone straight up. There's no such thing as a Lulu comeback, as I'm reading through this long history, because you've never stopped. That's kind of one of the most amazing things about you. Well, I suppose I just, you know, I do this because I love it. I never decided to sing because I wanted to be famous, which is something I think I hear just all too often these days. And I think how weird it is, mm. <laughs> because I would sing if I was paid. I would sing if I wasn't paid. So... There's no way I'm ever going to stop. Um, yeah, so I have have never stopped, really. Now, your first few singles are credited to Lulu and the Louvers. Lovers, lovers. It's pronounced lovers? Lovers, okay. yes. I know it's a weird spelling. That's yes, why. it is. It's Lulu and the L-U-V-V-E-R-S. Did they play on the records? Was there really They played such... as well as other musicians. Okay. I, I just wanted to clear that up. You finally sort of, uh, and also one other thing, Billy Bremner, one of my favorite guitar players, was he in the, the Lovers? Do you remember? No. Okay. Billy Bremner, no. All right. There, there's, it's, you know, the internet is a, there's all kinds of I know. I, know. <laughs> I do know. Uh, you toured Poland uh, with the Hollies back yeah. in 66. That's, I think, the first uh, female to go behind the Iron Curtain and play. What was that like? Yeah, I think, they, think the Hollies and I were the first ever to go. It was scary because it was kind of pretty devastated, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it was very gray, and the people were, you know, Depressed. And it was. A, an, what was their reaction to rock and roll? They went mad. They <laughs> loved it. So it it sort of even though it was fascinating to be there and kind of scary for a sixteen year old girl um, to see all that you know close at hand. You know the, the the bullets and the devastation of the buildings and the you know the sort of the downcast. It was like a downcast uh, uh, country, but uh, at the same time because of the reaction it was thrilling yeah uh 66 you mentioned the ed sullivan show david frost show johnny carson show you're a little kid from glasgow still i mean this is the big time was it just natural for you was it easy well i you know the the, the woman who was my manager said i took to it like a 
a fish to water, but a, or a duck to water, I can't remember. Oh, no, not a duck to water, a fish to water. Either one works, <laughs> that's fine. Um, or it was like water off a duck's back. I went, anyway, she used a couple of phrases. that, And I think I did, but believe me, it was it was still kind of quite, I don't know, it was... Mind-blowing? Frightening and exciting and mind-blowing, yeah, because, you know, the first, I mean, the first thing, I, I had a couple of hit records before I did To Sew With Love and before I came to America. So I was thrown in at the deep end, and I'd find myself, you know, like doing concerts with the Rolling Stones and working with the Beatles and hanging out with them all at clubs and things like that after the gigs and during, you know, when we were traveling around the country, we'd all meet up and there's certain cafes on the off the motorway where all the bands would meet, you know, and I'd hang out with the animals and and the Who. Uh, I mean, I worked with the Who before they were the Who. They were called the High Numbers. Mm. Um, so I, I, it was kind of, I was completely thrown in at the deep end. But as I said before, my main objective was just to sing. So I think that's what kept me, my head, um, you know, and I, I come from a very, I don't know, down-to-earth kind of, I have a very down-to-earth background. So I was very fortunate that I didn't go off the deep end. Didn't, didn't lose your head. Uh, you switched from Decca to Columbia, from Burt Burns to Mickey Most producing your record. Mickey Most produced The Animals, Donovan, Herman Hermits. A lot of great records. Uh, what was it like? What was he like? Mickey. Well, Mickey was it was like a hit factory. He, he was, um, he just, everything he touched was a hit. And uh, I, um, I actually found it difficult sometimes because I really didn't want to sing those rinky-dink songs like, I had hits with songs called, I mean, what were they? I try to forget them because it was a painful, it was kind of painful in some ways. Even though I was having really? hits, I didn't really like the song. Yeah, I think the first six or seven singles Mickey Mouse did on you all were hits in the UK. I mean, yeah, every they, one of them. They were, in my opinion, because I had was very opinionated, they were rinky-dink and really sissy. You know what sissy means? <laughs> yes. Girly, very girly. And I really prefer to sing songs that were more like a guy. That's interesting. We heard uh, Me the Peaceful Heart, uh, written yeah. by Tony Hazard. I love that song. We're, we're, uh, Tony was a guest on this program. Was was that song written just for you? Was I don't think so. I don't remember. Mm. I don't. It may have been because you know when you're popular uh, and selling records, everybody wants to work with you. Today, it's the same with producers. You you know all the producers want to work with the people who are selling the records because they want to make money. They want to be famous. <laughs> so. Um, and now, really, it's more about the producers than it's about the acts, to be honest with you. Uh, but then it was the songwriters trying to write for the singers who were selling records. So it could have been. There's this great idea that there were these great songwriters, guys like Tony Hazard, who were expressing the feelings of your generation. Of the 60s, yeah. yeah. In a way, almost, that didn't really happen in America in quite the same concise way, guys like Ray Davies, guys like that. It was, is that a real thing? I don't know. You see, I think... Maybe that it was, you know, because the focus was on the UK really at that point, I think for the first time ever. <laughs> but, you know, um, I think people were, were emerging. A lot of talent was emerging. Yeah. But I think after I started, it became really the age of the singer-songwriter. And I really didn't start writing songs till much, much, much later, which is something I suppose I should have addressed. Um, so... At that point, a lot of singers were getting songs from songwriters, and that's not so. Doesn't happen so much these days, you know. Hmm. Uh, so it was a very, it was a very interesting time, and there were a lot of really good writers around. Yeah, there. it really was. Just you know, it's so rare to see great song, great band, great production, great singer. You know, that... and I always preferred American music. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> On those records, are you singing live with the band? Or yes, it, yeah. oh, that, yes. 
There was no going in and there was no comping vo- vocals like they do today. You know what comping vocals are. Well, you, yeah, you sing the song 50 times and they cut the best syllables yeah. out of each they one. They can do, which is really, for someone like me, it's... Sometimes it's good, but you want to get the essence of the song. A performance. I mean, actually, in movies, they do that, too. In movies, they'll take, you know, they'll take a shot, uh, 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 they'll do a scene straight through, and then they will cut in and have close-ups and, you know, edit them together. So it's, it's technically, it's a brilliant way to go about it. But mm. for me, I like to lay down the whole track, and I like to get to know the song. Because if you don't do it, then you have to do it later, because you're going to go on stage and perform it. Yeah, yeah. Records that feel like a performance always are are the most moving. I think. Yeah, but then again, you know, technically, there's so many genius things you can do with sound today and layering, and you know, oh my God, EQing. There's so many things that are brilliant to do to records today that make the, the sound extraordinary. That you know, of course, a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new is always the best way. Yeah, too many people using that as a crutch, sort of. You know, you don't actually no, need that's to. Always been the case. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. There's always tricks. Uh, you talked about to, about films. Let's talk about *Disturbed Love*, 1967. How did they p- say you? Let's you know, we want you to be in this film. Did you have to audition? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I'll tell you what was happening. I had a song called *Leave a Little Love* that was in the top ten, I think, in England. It was a ballad. And uh, because before that, I wasn't really known as a ballad singer. But uh, I was on tour with the Beach Boys. Um, it, they were, I think they were number one with Good Vibrations, I think, at the time. And I was, it was like the Beach Boys and Lulu. Um, the director, James Clavell, was looking for, you know, lots of young kids to be in the film. And somebody I knew told the casting director, anyway... James Clavell came to the a concert, and he came backstage, and he met me, and he was very, I don't know, he had a certain attitude with me, and I really didn't care about him or his film. Hmm. I was not desperate to be in a movie, and I wasn't desperate to be an actress, so I had a certain attitude, too. And I think he said something like, you know, of course, you'll have to change the color of your hair, which was bright red. And I said, if you want me in your film, you'll have me the way I am. You know, like, I'm not... I'm not desperate to change to be in your film, so I'm not desperate to co- change the color of my hair. You know, I wasn't the typical actress type. Yes, okay, whatever you say, I'll do it. I suppose an actress will change. I wasn't, you know, anyway, I was very naive. But I, I, gave, I had the right reaction, and he laughed. And he, that's the sort of part I sort of played in the right. film. It's a very interesting movie, Sidney Poitier, of course. must have been awesome. Oh, oh that was terrifying. <laughs> that was terrifying. First of all, Sydney's six foot, I don't know what. So just to stand and look up to him, you feel it's daunting, you know. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I was not an actress, and all the other kids from in the film were, came from acting schools, stage schools and stuff mm. like that. And I spoke with a thick Scottish accent, and they all had English accents. And I, nobody suggested that I change my accent, but I decided I didn't want to be different from the other kids so he, he kept us there for a few days before in the, on the set, before we actually had a scene. And within those three, two or three days, I had got the Cockney accent off Pat mm. because um, I did not want to be different. So I talked like that, you know, I said, hello, how are you? <laughs> when in fact, I really used to talk like that with a very, because, but thank God I had got an ear for accent, so 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the the song, of course, is it was a giant hit in the United States. Perhaps your your most well known song over here to serve oh, a love. Yeah. It's just a, a great classic song. Yet in the UK, it wasn't even released as a single. Why is oh, well, that? Well, that was one of the fights I had with Mickey. I mean, I used to argue with Mickey a lot. I mean, I used to say to, I used to beg him actually, not even argue with him. I used to plead with him to let me do the sort of songs I liked. And then when I got the part in the film, I said, you know, we are going to do. Uh, they want me to do the title song, so we have to get a song written. And and really, the songs that came up were so desperately awful, in my opinion, and I was always in tears about it. It seemed like I was always crying, you know. <laughs> and then I finally asked a friend of mine to write a song, and he said, they'll never use it. I said, write something. So I stood around with him, and I suppose really I should have gotten involved in the writing of I should have gotten a credit for it. But, you know, I was a bit naive, as I said then. So he wrote this melody. We called up a lyricist. We got a lyricist written, Don Black, the brilliant lyricist. Took it to the to the film company. They were happy. They didn't care. Uh, they really didn't care. And um, so I took charge of it as I was going to sing it. And then Mickey didn't like it very much. We did it. And he wouldn't put it on what was then called the A-side, because in Vine, 45... Um, RPM, the vinyl, vinyl records that you got, you had an A side and the other side was a B side. He put it on the B side and, and would not release it as an A side, either in America or in England. But thank God and God bless the American DJs, they turned it over here. Yeah, I think it was the B side of Let's Pretend. That's right. He, yeah. But here, the DJs wouldn't play Let's Pretend. They just played To Serve With Love and it went to number one. That's Mickey, fun. really, he didn't think it was very good. He wasn't. <laughs> He might have been a big hit maker, but somehow with me, he didn't get the essence of me, I didn't think. Hmm. I mean, I love Mickey. It's not that, you know, we didn't like each other. We just disagreed artistically. And, you know, things like Let's Pretend were okay, and The Boat That I Row was okay, and all the other songs were okay. But I want to do, walk me out in the morning, do my honey. But he wanted me to sing rinky-dink little songs like, boy, I want to have you standing by me, boy. That's how he saw me, I think, because I was small and people would say I was cute. And I really listened to Christina Aguilera tell a sort of similar story. She wanted to do the stuff she wanted to do. And record companies want you to do often what they want you to do. But I didn't take charge of that then. Yeah. But I, I mean, I can't complain because I had success. But I think in some ways, people just didn't get my voice. They didn't marry my voice with the way I looked and my personality. It's interesting. You, lots and lots of television, uh, really from the you know mid-60s. Currently, you've just been a fixture on UK television. Uh, tours of nightclubs, which is a scene that sort of doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah, I did that for about 10 years, I Mi- think. You know, Miami, there was all these clubs, and Hollywood, the Coconut Grove, places like that. I mean, that must have been a riot. Oh, that? Well, that was the first time I'd ever done a nightclub in the Coconut Grove. I'd never been in a nightclub. It was always just like teenage clubs I'd worked in. Or actually, when I was very, very young, I used to work at the American bases outside Glasgow. Hmm. And of course, I felt very comfortable there because, you know, they liked the kind of music I liked. And I, we sang all the sort of American hits more than the British hits, you know, me and my band. Hmm. Uh- Recently, uh, I think it was last November, uh, a Best of Your Atco recordings just came out. This is stuff you made in 1969 to 1972, yeah. mostly recorded in America, real change of direction, uh, a lot of stuff recorded in Muscle Shoals, working with the, that crew down there, including uh, Dwayne Allman on guitar and, you know, Roger Hawkins, all those guys. What was that? Ex- another sort of well, mind. what happened was I was with Mickey for three years, and we had tremendous success, but I told you, you know, even though those hit songs were hits, I wasn't comfortable with a lot of them. 
Um, so, um, uh, Atlantic Records asked me, I mean, I went to Muscle Shoals to work with Jerry Wexler, Tom Dowd, and Arise Mardin. Right. The three of them produced my album. And to be fair, too, I don't really think they got me either. It was like, <laughs> there was a mishmash of songs. And I was so over, I mean, overwhelmed to be working with such geniuses. Yeah, the, the, the New Roots album, it's a very interesting album. And those three guys really all were, you know, crazy geniuses and made some they great were, records. Yeah. They were, but I think when I went with them, to be absolutely honest with you, I don't think they got me either. I mean, this is, it sounds like I'm complaining all the time, <laughs> but we, I love the experience. I just love the experience and the musicians I work with. I mean, we then went on to work with um, the Dixie Flyers. No, the Dixie Flyers were in Muscle Shoals, right? Right, those were those guys. Then you went then down I to went Florida. I went to Miami, and, right. and the Young Rascals did all the backing vocals for me. Hmm. But um, I took a song with me that was written by a young Scottish guy from my hometown called Oh Me Oh My. And that was the one song that was a hit off that New Roots album. Uh, let's go ahead to 1974. Of course, Man with the Golden Gun. You, that that puts you in a sort of a long chain of great, you know, title songs for Bond movies. Mm -hmm. Must have been a big thrill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. And then David Bowie produces a couple songs on you. Yeah. Uh, and there's rumors you and Bowie are an item. You and Bowie are an item. Clear it up for me, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I, that's all I can. That's all I can do. Uh. You've been a DJ on the radio, too. What is Well, you know, all through my career, I mean, I actually had a television series. I, I hosted my own TV series for, I don't even know, 12 of them from the age of 17. So I was on TV practically from the day I landed in, in England. And then um, I, I, you know, uh, the, several times, I mean, I have actually had a show of my own. Where I have, I'm not a real DJ. Don't get me, you know, wrong. I could go on and play songs that I love. That's what I used to do. Mm -hmm. I did it for Capital Radio and I did it for Radio 2 for several years. But, I, you know, I love music, so I can talk about it, for, as you can tell, I can talk about it forever. <laughs> yeah, but, well, being on the radio is fun. Uh, you are one of only two people to be on top of the pops in each of the five decades mm -hmm. that the show's on you and Cliff Who Richard. Was the other person? Cliff Richard. Oh, yeah. And in 2000, you got an OBE from the Queen. What exactly is that and was it important to you? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great honor to be given, um, something like an OBE from, you know, your country, from the Queen. And in fact, it was Prince Charles that gave it to me. Um, it doesn't really change your life, but it's just that, and it's like, um, when, in fact, when I went up to him, he said to me, this is, uh, this should have happened years ago. And, and he said to me, have you got that, that, you're going to get, show me that picture you've got in the attic because he said, you know, people tend to say that I don't look my age. And I, you know, it's very, it's crazy, but they're always, so he, it was very cute of him to say that to me because you don't know if you're going to be chatty with them or if they're just going to brush you off and they're going to go next. Right. But he was very chatty. But of course, um, the thrill would have been my parents would have loved it. Mm. They would have loved it. It's just honoring the work that you've done, your body of work. And, you know, I, I think for me it was probably about longevity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you, your your career continues. You've written hit songs for Tina Turner. You've written two books. Uh, I noticed you've got a MySpace uh, profile. Do you actually check it? I actually don't do it very much. At the beginning, I used to do it all the time. But overwhelming. All the time. I, I became obsessed with it, but now I'm not so, not so, yeah, I'm on it, but I don't really, I'm not on it every day. You, like, you should be if you're going to have one of those. I agree. Do you have an, do you have an iPod? Of course. And what I have do, a Nano. What do you listen to? Oh, 
Um, I, I love Christina Aguilera. Hmm. Um, uh, who else do I like? Right now, I'm actually listening to a new duo. They're, gonna, they're not out yet, uh, called Alex and Britt. There are two young girls that I think are really, they're sort of going to be the queens of the iPod shuffle generation. They're going to be the kids who I think they're going to just take over. You know, there is nobody who is, has got a sound like this. Um, so that's, that's something you should listen out for. Okay. Uh, I like to listen to, I mean, I love the Eagles' new album. Um, who else do I like right now? Um, well, I like the Kaiser Chiefs. I like a lot of British bands. Um, so you stay current. I like, yeah. And let me think, who else do I really, really, really like? Well, Chris Martin is good. Of course, he's a great writer. Um, and my friend Elton, I always have his albums on. When you're in the supermarket and a Lulu song comes on, how does that feel? <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Is it a little weird? <laughs> yes. Are you a workaholic? It seems like you are. You were just on American Idol. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of think the American Idol is sort of ruined singing in, in a way. It sort of forces folks to put every trick into every song, which is not how my favorite records sound. Oh, really? You, you know, American Idol? I don't think so. I don't agree with you. Yeah. I, it, I think it's just the process of, of, of recording today. I mean, there's always tricks, but today, technically... Um, it's amazing what you can do in the studio, and I personally am thrilled by it. Um, and I think, you know, uh, people like Missy are a genius. You know, I think she's an absolute genius. Mm. You know, and I think she's, she's not only a good songwriter, but she can make a sound in the studio that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the technical stuff, but I hear what you're saying. There's nothing, what I think you're saying more, am I right in saying that you like the live sound? Well, I just think that in to win a performance, you have to sort of show off. And so you're concentrating on that instead of what you talked about earlier, of getting to know the song and mm. performing the song mm. as as what suits the song. This is trying to impress people. And, you know, there's just a little too much, you know, Histrionics. Is that yeah, histrionics. The well, you know Every what? Song. I mean, for me, I like someone who can cut it. Like Van Morrison, obviously, can cut it. Um, and so, I mean, Sting's voice is unbelievable. I'm talking about in sort of old school, really. But then there are so many young people who have got great voices today. There's a lot of, it's like every generation. There's good and there's not so good. And I personally like someone who is a great singer. I love a good voice. There's a great record. There's a great sound. But also I like a show. I mean, there's nobody better than than Prince. Mm. You know, and God bless her, Britney Spears used to put on a fantastic show. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, on stage, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, I, and she made great records. But I'm not going to say she's my favorite singer. Yeah, yeah. There's you know, a difference. I, so I like the package. Personally, I like the package. But I am a sucker for a great voice. Hmm. So, what's coming up for you? Uh, well, the, you know, right now I've got. I'm just about to sort of start. I'll be 60 this year, so I'm going to have. Oh, it's like a, a really probably going to be the busiest year I've ever had because I'm going to do a TV special uh, with lots of interesting guests to celebrate my 60th. I'm going to, um, uh, I have a, a, a skin line because I mentioned before people are always sort of crazily telling me, you know, that I look great, but I don't look my age. So I have have this skin line and I'm, you know, that's a business, a new business that I have. Um, 
I'm always being uh, doing photo shoots. So, but I've got an album. I've got to do an album for the 60th birthday and do the special. And then I've got a lot of other work. And there's a lot of a couple of interesting things in the pipeline for America. So I'm hoping you're going to see a lot more of me over here. Actually, I can't wait. I hope yeah, so. Yeah, that would be great. And you know, the other thing is that I work with Take That. You know, there's a band called Take That that are very big in in England, and I had number one with them a couple of years ago. You know, the old Dan Hartman song. Uh, well, you gotta be strong enough to walk on through the night. There's a new day out on the other side. Do you know it? Mm. Relight my fire. And, and that was a, a big hit with them. Yeah, that was number one. Yeah. And so you're working with them again. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I'm going to close this out by playing To Serve With Love. It, okay. It's just such a great song. and I never get tired of it. Do you, That's very sweet. Do you remember the day that you, you know, went in the studio and sang it? Uh, to serve with love. Yeah. Can I remember that day? No, I can't. <laughs> Can you make something up real quick? What you <laughs> make a story up about it? It was snowing outside, and uh, no. well, I think you know it was all very rushed. The thing was very rushed. I didn't have much time to do it, and because at that point, I think I was probably doing my television series, and um, Mickey always did things very quickly. He didn't spend a lot of time recording, and I think I was very upset that he only had six strings. Mm. You know, he should, I felt he should have had a 30-piece orchestra because it was for a movie. Interesting. The, the string arrangement on this is brilliant. And, and the sentiment of the song is completely timeless, which I think, you know, really helps songs. It, you know, I think the song Married with the Film was key. Yeah. And I think, although I have to say, when I went on American Idol this year, last season, I mean, I said, if I have to sing that song the same way, I think I'll shoot myself. <laughs> so... I, what I did was I thought it needs a you know it needs a, a kick to it. It needs to be done differently and needs to work with this big band on American Idol. So I called Barry Manilow and you know Barry did the arrangement for me. I I watched that on YouTube. There's a clip of that uh, yeah. and it's great. Yeah, great. Yeah, well version. Barry did that arrangement and I thought it was killer. Yeah. I mean he's an absolute genius. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and Elton said, "Who did that arrangement?" He said, "Was that Barry Manilow?" I said, how did you guess? He said, the key change. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> well, you and, you know, maybe Elton and Barry Manilow on your new record. Well, I've worked with Elton lots, and I've ha- I yeah. had, um, Elton will probably do the TV show with me. Yeah, he's a lot of fun, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's great. <laughs> well, I look forward to uh, uh, my invitation to your birthday party. Oh, right. In the mail. I, listen, I'm not going to have a birthday party, but I have a show. Maybe you'll come to the show. That'll be fun. Lulu, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. There's, And this is really just the tip of the iceberg on, on your fantastic career. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I've just come off to, I've been touring for a year with a guy called Jules Holland, who has a big R&B band. Right. And, um, uh, in fact, at New Year's, we just did his, his, his show uh, on television. And I, I will do a little tour of my own this year, but I toured for a year with him. So, you know, after Christmas, I was pretty tired. Take a break. I am. Okay. We're going to hear to Sir We Love Lulu. Thanks so much. Thank you. Sure, a pleasure. Bye.
It is. Doesn't get old, man. That is just perfect. Lulu Tucer would love you. Can check out www.lulu.co.uk for information about Lulu. She's written two autobiographies, so there's two of those. There's information about her skin cream line and all that on her website. Uh, next week. Tacos! Tacos! Jack Herbs, welcome to WFMU. How are you? I'm just fine, thank you. And you? I'm doing fantastic. You have the distinction of being the guest on the program, perhaps that I know littlest about, starting off. So we've we've got a lot of work to do. Okay. Uh, tell me how you got into the music business. Well, it uh, was kind of a quirk uh, when I was a uh, young fellow, about 18 years old. I had played the guitar a little bit at home and. Uh, uh, this is a funny story, but I was working in Estes Park, Colorado at a go-kart track, and uh, there was a band playing downtown at uh, a place called Jack Snacks, and the name of the band was uh, the Nightcaps. They were out of uh, Texas, and uh, one night uh, they showed up about 7 o'clock and wanted to know if I played the guitar, and I said yes, but not very well, and they 
said, uh, we have a fellow that got sick and had to go back to Texas, and we need to have a fourth person because of our union contract. So I reluctantly, uh, my boss told me to go ahead. I went down. I uh, played with him for uh, a night. I uh, wound up playing with him most of the summer, and by the end of the summer, I was the senior guy in the band, and that's really how I got started. And so you were uh, just a teenager still at that time, and this just was the, teenager. the late 1950s, the early 60s? Uh, that was in 1958, summer of 1958. And so what kind of music were those guys doing? Well, they were doing uh, rock and roll. Just the early beginnings of rock and roll, a lot of Chuck Berry, uh, Buddy Holly uh, type of music. And I always wonder, where did uh, you folks hear that music? Because that music wasn't the mainstay of the radio, certainly, at that time. Well, there was a radio station in uh, Denver, Colorado, KIMN, and uh, a disc jockey there named Pogo Pogue. That was the station that uh, played most of the early rock and roll music, uh, beginning really with uh, Elvis Presley and uh, Chuck Berry and then Buddy Holly uh, later on. So how did you go from, from that gig to professional recording? I knew a few fellows. I was actually living in Greeley, Colorado and working in Estes Park during the summer before uh, college. And uh, the fellows that I had brought up to get into the band uh, were all from Greeley. And we started playing um, a lot of old little local pubs and, uh, and uh, later on uh, a lot of college uh, fraternity parties. And then eventually we started playing for a lot of college uh, dances, uh, homecomings and proms in the Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska area. And uh, we... Uh, of course, we thought we were pretty good and at the time, and we were just kind of really beginning. We made a few uh, demo uh, records in Denver and uh, sent one down to uh, Norman Petty in Clovis, New Mexico, and he called me back and told me he'd like to hear us uh, play and if we could get down to Clovis sometime, and that's really how we got started. Amazing. You could just uh, call him up, send, send a demo, and actually speak to Norman Petty in person. Right, yeah. He's a very, very nice fellow. Probably the nicest uh, person I ever met in the music business. Wow, that's amazing, because I've had a, a bunch of guests on who've worked with him or crossed paths with him, and I've heard a couple say real nice things about him, and a couple folks say not-so-nice things about him. <laughs> well, I, I really like Norman and his wife, uh, Vi. Uh, actually, she uh, did some uh, voice work on a couple of records that I made, and Norman uh, lived with his parents, who originally owned a... Uh, uh, car uh, repair shop, and he turned that into a uh, recording studio. So you guys went down, did you go down with the band to Clovis? I did, yeah. And We, uh, uh, we all loaded up and uh, drove down in cars the first time we went down. And you auditioned for him live, or did you just start to record right away? We auditioned for him live, and uh, we spent a whole uh, afternoon playing and singing and getting to know each other, and uh, he... Uh, recorded some of the things that we played and kind of went from there, asked us if we were interested in a contract, and uh, he was going to see if he could get us a record contract. And So we uh, we signed a personal uh, management contract, and then all of the music that I recorded, I, I wrote myself. And so uh, we had a publishing uh, contract with he and, and by his wife also. So tell me about uh, recording with Norman Petty, uh, the records that come out of that studio are all really interesting sounding. Uh, he obviously was doing something right there. They all sort of have a have a great magic sound to them. 
Yeah, the uh, Norman, uh, when he put his studio together, he had a fellow from uh, Germany come over and uh, uh, do all the, and a German engineer uh, he brought over with him, and they set up Norman's uh, studio. So Norman had a real clean, unique sound, and uh, they uh, they spent a lot of money and had the probably the best recording equipment in the country at that time. Tell me, do you remember the actual day you recorded Jimmy's party? You know, I really couldn't tell you. And do you think it took a couple hours or a couple days? Or well, we probably uh, we probably did ten or twelve takes on it. And that's the band playing live on that record. That's the band playing live. That was my my group, uh, guys from Greeley. There. Huh. It's such a great record. That's really my favorite. It's just a fantastic record. Great song. What do you remember writing the song? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, that we were. That was about the time that uh, Chubby Checker came out with the twist and such, and we didn't have a, we we didn't have any twist music or twist records. So I just sat down one afternoon and put that thing together, probably in an hour, and uh, worked it out with the band, and we started playing it live and uh, decided to uh, record it. It came out, I believe, on the Delphi label, right? That's correct, Bob Keane and. Uh, then we had we did a lot of um, work in the studio with Norman later on. We played with a lot of different uh, groups, and sometimes uh, I was down just by myself. They would add a track to this or that, and we did basically the same thing out for Delphi uh, when we got out there. So we didn't have a lot of records, you know, really in our in my name. Actually, the last two here that was out, but. I played with uh, quite a few groups. We went through the surf music scene and and the Hot Rod. Uh, I think we made three Hot Rod albums under different names. So it was just a lot of mix and match things going on out there with us mostly. Let me get this straight. It seems like Bob Keane put you to work making sort of being a house band for Delphi or, or playing in the house band. Well, uh, yeah, uh, more or less. We did a lot of different uh different types of music. Bob was kind of innovative with uh, whatever uh, popped up, like the surf music and the hot rod music. He would just pretty much grab anybody that was there. He had a lot of other groups under contract, and whoever was in town, he'd grab a few of us. We'd uh, practice for an afternoon and and record the next day a lot of uh, different uh, songs. And what we really... He would name the group on the album, but the the album might have been made up of maybe 15 or 20 different musicians, and none of us were ever named on there. Was I think there was one of them called the Deuce Coops, and you know uh, oh, names sure. such as that. So we never really it really wasn't our music per se, but we you know we were part of it. With the success of Jimmy's Party, and I didn't realize, did you play a lot of shows? Did you go on tour? Uh, we did. Uh, actually, that's where we made most of our money. We didn't make any money off the records, but and were these package shows, or were you guys were, playing? No, they were they were package shows with uh, with other groups. What kind of groups were you were you playing with? Probably the the one you'd know the most. Uh, it, now we played a couple of weeks in uh, Las Vegas. We were the uh, warm up band for Wayne Newton. It was actually called the Newton Brothers at that time. Wayne Newton hadn't become that popular, but that must have been fun. Oh, it was it was a ball musicians, um, <laughs> and none of us were ever named on there. Was I think there was one of them called the Deuce Coops, and 
you know, uh, oh, names sure. such as that. So we never really, it really wasn't our music per se, but we, you know, we were part of it. With the success of Jimmy's Party, and I didn't realize, did you play a lot of shows? Did you go on tour? Uh, we did. Uh, actually, that's where we made most of our money. We didn't make any money off the records, but... And were these package shows, or were you guys were, playing... No, they were, they were package shows with uh, with other groups. What kind of groups were you, were you playing with? Probably the the one you'd know the most. Uh, it, now, we played a couple of weeks in uh, Las Vegas. We were the uh, warm-up band for Wayne Newton. It was actually called the Newton Brothers at that time. Wayne Newton hadn't become that popular, but... That must have been fun. Oh, it was it was a ball. Um, <laughs> that was such a different time, you know. It was. I mean, you could. Uh, it was different, but uh, you know, it was really enjoyable too because there weren't that many rock and roll bands uh, back in the late fifties and early sixties. So, if you had a rock and roll band together, you were pretty much it. And so, uh, we had a lot of a lot more work than than we could handle. Uh, I think there was only one other rock and roll band up in Colorado at that time, you know, that was popular, and it was a group called the Astronauts. And uh, so we pretty much, the two of us, uh, the two bands, we got most all the business. If you can take yourself back in time, I believe at the uh, University of Colorado dance, we were paid $5,000, and I think that was in 1962. Wow. That was for four of us, so (laughs) if you... You know, you put that in today's dollars, it'd probably be 50000 for one night. So <laughs> we were real lucky to get That's probably the most we ever got paid. That's a fortune, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we made a lot of money playing uh, just, uh, uh, you know, personal things. So what caused you finally to give up on music? And wh- and well, what- I got a little uh, bittered and a little uh, sour because of Bob Keen. Uh, you know, when we'd release the record, he just couldn't seem to get it out there, and it was... You know, it was hurting us, uh, and from that point on, we kind of went into more of, uh, personal appearances, and I was always interested in flying, so uh, the money that I made from uh, music business, I went out to flying lessons and uh, became a pilot for Northwest Airlines for 35 years. And is there a chance you'll dust off your guitar and, and play again? Do you still write music? Do you still play? Right. I still do. I still uh, still write, still play, not professionally. I still have, uh, oh gosh, a half a dozen guitars. I still have my Fender guitars and my amplifiers. And occasionally I'll play for a party here locally, you know. But uh, I don't do any professional uh, work anymore. And so what do, you, what do you fill your days with? Well, I have a little airplane. I have a Beach Bonanza, and uh, I fly that a lot. I play handball about three times a week, and uh, play the guitar. I've got a couple of Harleys. I ride my Harley uh, motorcycles, and I'm pretty busy. All right, well, Jack Herbst, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to end this by playing Jimmy's Party, just because it's really one of my all-time favorite songs. It never fails to sort of make me smile and make the phones at the the radio station light up. Everybody wants to know uh, about this record. So anything else, any final memories about the writing or the recording or, or, you know? No, I think that's about it, so... Do you remember? Listen, Michael, I really appreciate your call, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for remembering us all, guys. Well, now, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy's having a party tonight. Well, now, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy's having a party tonight. We're gonna twist around like a crazy clown. 
So come on, baby. 